0: One, two, three. Welcome to Live Mike, Best of TPL Conversations, our regular Toronto Public Library podcast series featuring curated discussions and interviews with some of today's best-known and yet-to-be-known writers, thinkers, and artists recorded on stage at one of Toronto Public Library's 100 branches.
1: So before we get started today... We're actually going to start a little bit backwards and maybe some, some of the events that maybe you have been to before, which is um, I'd like to invite Vanessa to introduce the book. Tell us a little about those who perhaps have not had the opportunity to read the book yet. Um, and then from there, perhaps inviting her to read a page or two from, from the novel, uh, just to get a sense of the flow and the feel of the book. Um, so I'll turn it over to Vanessa.
2: Thank you for being here. I'm really touched, and I'm very grateful that you're all here. Um, I'm particularly touched that I have a special guest, my sister flew in from New York, which I just discovered, so I'm a little shaken by that. Um, So It's a bit of a surprise, so I'll try to do a good job of this and not get all weepy. Um, So I'll tell you a little bit about the book. I don't know if I can read with the microphone at the same time. We'll see how that works. Um, But I have been studying uh, Buddhism for 20 odd years. I don't actually know how many. Um, And I have been specializing on the Buddha's hagiography, so his life story as as it's narrated in early sources. um, Looking at early Chinese and Sanskrit and Pali and Tibetan texts, um, whatever I can find that talks about his life story, I'm fascinated by it. It doesn't end. There's so many versions of it. It changes. Wherever the story is told, it's told differently. Um, And over the years, obviously, if you read about the Buddha's life story, you discover he has a wife. Um, which seems to miss a lot of people's radar, is that somehow he's always the figure. And we forget that there was a wife. Uh, And she was there for a very long time. So she's not like she's there for five minutes, it's like a token wedding, and then he leaves her. She's there for lifetimes. Um, This is one of the things that I've I've started uh, kind of creating an academic argument about this, that I want to say that the Buddha and his wife is actually an eternal love story. Uh, Something that we don't have in Western literature because it's a love story that they keep coming back to each other lifetime after lifetime. It's very beautiful and very romantic, but we don't tend to think about Buddhism as having that kind of a quality. So I wanted to bring that quality out and to kind of give her a voice and tell her story and recognize that there was a woman by his side. Um, So you know that they say behind every great man there's a woman. Um, She was not behind him, she was next to him uh, for lifetimes. And we have missed that narrative, not everywhere in the world. There are Buddhist countries that are very conscious of her existence and have stories and poems and songs uh, in her voice. But the most common thing that people say to me when they encounter the book is, oh, I didn't know the Buddha had a wife. That's like the most common thing that I get. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have had that same experience. It's totally fine. She's not really given much of a voice. So this book is a way of giving her a voice. Um, her story. has a lot of sadness to it um, because she's left behind, right? He goes off and he becomes the Buddha and he's praised and celebrated. And he's Mr. Buddha, Um, and everyone remembers him. And there's statues of him all over the world 2,500 years later, and temples dedicated to him. I mean, he's got a lot of attention. Um, But she was there, and she got left behind. Uh, And this is after lifetimes of being beside him. So the loss is particularly pronounced, because she was with him lifetime after lifetime. And then in the last lifetime, he walks away. So there's a sense of utter betrayal of how could you leave me behind? Like, why won't you take me with you? Like Why can't we do this together? Right? How come you had to do this by yourself? And that's one of the unanswered questions of the story. I mean, there's obviously a Buddhist answer to the question. Um, but on some level, I think there isn't. Is why didn't he take her with him? Why did he have to just break it there, right? Um, So he leaves her, he becomes the Buddha. So he was a prince in a kingdom, if you don't know the story, and has a very kind of fairy tale life, uh, protected in his palace, never sees suffering, and then one day encounters suffering and realizes I have to get out of here, and he runs away. And he runs away so fast he doesn't even say goodbye to her. He waits till she's fallen asleep, the day she's given birth to her son, his son, and looks at her, according to one text, he stares at her through the room on the threshold. He won't even step into the room. He just stands on the threshold, and he looks at his sleeping wife with the newborn son, and he thinks to himself, if I pick up my son, she will wake up, and then I can't leave. And to me, that is the most romantic moment of all. Because it's not, I can't wake up my son because I don't want to wake up a newborn. It's, I don't want her to wake up because then I can't go and he doesn't explain why, but to me there's something very beautiful about that, that somehow if he wakes her up, all the courage will be gone. That's how I read it anyway. There's obviously alternative interpretations, but I like that one. So <laughs> he can't. He can't, say, he can't walk away from her, right? So he, she, he has to leave when she's asleep. And so he gallops off and you know, goes to do his training in the woods, and he leaves her behind. And what's so extraordinary is that the early literature is full of stories and poems and songs of her absolute anguish when she wakes up the next day and she finds out he's gone. How could he do this to me? And so she's alone in the palace with her in-laws, royal in-laws, I mean that, you know. You have in-laws and then you have royal (laughs) in-laws. And uh, if you know anything about South Asian literature, there's a trope there. So he's, she's got the serious in-laws and she's alone, left behind. And in South Asian tradition, when a man becomes a renunciant, um, the wife is a widow. It's a social death. Like He's officially gone. It's finished. He can't ever come back. And so now she's a widow and she has to give up her bangles and she has to remove the parting in her hair and she has to remove all of her beautiful clothes and she has to wear white and she's a widow. And she's left behind, but he's alive. And she's a widow with her son. And then, seven years later, once he's achieved Buddhahood, he comes back. And he's the Buddha. And it's fabulous. We have a Buddha. Everyone's excited. The cosmos is excited. Flowers fall from the heavens. The gods are, everybody's excited. The whole universe is excited except for her. And he comes back to the palace. And she refuses to come see him. Everyone else in the palace comes to see him. And she stays back, and she says, if he wants to see me, he's going to have to come see me my, himself. So she's still the wife, right? and she's, what he did was wrong. And so she stays in her room, and she knows him because he comes to her room. <laughs> so he knocks on her door, and he shows up. And it's the only person that he will go see personally. And so he goes to see her like a husband entering her private room, like as though he's still her husband in some way. And he greets her as the husband, but as the Buddha, right? So there's this, this, the, the bonds between the two of them is very profound. It's very beautiful. And there's something very romantic and also quite sad because it's all about this loss. And then the worst thing happens is he tells her, well, so I'm back. I'm the Buddha. And um, I'm going to take our son now. The son is seven years old or eight years old, depending on the text you read, it doesn't matter. And he says, it's time. My son has asked me, what, where, where, where's my inheritance? What happens to my life? Are you the king? Are you not the king? Like, What happens now that you're back? And he says, if you want your inheritance, I will shave your head. That's your inheritance. Right? What you receive is the teachings. That's what I have left to give you. So he tells her, I'm going to take our son with me. And so she loses again. Right? Her, her life is like a stripping away of loss after loss after loss. And he goes and he becomes the Buddha. And she has to figure out how to live with that. So he takes the son. So the piece that I thought I would read to you um, is the prologue. I open the book with her having to say goodbye to her son, which to me, and this is this something that really struck me is so many texts will point to the fact that there is this tradition of him taking the son. Um, it's a universal aspect of his hagiography. I have not yet seen one text that describes the moment of goodbye between her and him, where she says goodbye to her son. And to me, that's, I, I interpret things very romantically, but I'm convinced that what that means is that the authors of the tradition couldn't bear it, right? that this is really a very sad story, and the authors of the tradition know this. They're sensitive to this because they have depicted a very sad story, but there are some scenes that they actually just point to, but never draw out. So this scene I had to imagine myself because I had no text to build on. I just knew it happened. But I had to write it out for myself. Like I, I couldn't copy anything. Um, so I'll read to you just a portion of it. Um, it's when it, oh, the book opens and she's in her room and she's devastated and she's crying with her maid servant. They have a very intimate friendship, her and her maid servant. And she's angry at him. And she says, how could he keep doing this to me? He keeps taking everything away from me. What kind of a husband is this? She's really angry. Um, And so she's expressing her outrage and her fear and her emotion. And she's sad. It's all of the emotions under the sun. And then finally, her maidservant says, but you can't fall apart because your son needs you now. So this is what's going to happen. You have to go downstairs and say goodbye. She doesn't have any choice. So, the scene I'll read to you, if I can manage this, uh, is when she says goodbye. I walked carefully down the rounded marble staircase that led to the Great Hall. My trembling had subsided, but I was still a bit uncertain. I held the golden handrail with one hand, and I lifted my robes with the other so as not to slip. When I reached the bottom, I exhaled. I could see bodies milling around in the courtyard ahead, men dressed in orange rags, moving around silently ochre-colored shadows. I adjusted my braid one more time, smoothed out my white wrap, tightened my sash, and crossed the great hall to the courtyard with one objective in mind, to find my son. He was sitting by himself by the edge of the lotus pool. How are you, darling, I asked as I sat down beside him. He didn't look up. His fingers were trailing through the water in between the flowers. A flock of blackbirds tore through the darkening sky, chasing the moon like lost souls. He didn't notice them either. The servants would start lighting the oil lamps, and then everything would be different. Sweetheart? No response. Rahula, I whispered as I placed my hand on the softness of his neck. Please look at me. He trailed his fingers a little while longer, making pathways through the water. A frog watched him from the safety of a lotus leaf. Eventually he looked up. His beautiful eyes were filled with emotions he could not speak aloud. I wanted to fall into them. My mind fled into the past without permission as images of him from over the years paraded before my eyes. When had he grown so tall? I placed the lock of hair behind his ear as I'd done so many times before. But then I recoiled at the realization that soon his hair would be shaved. He would be so different. He wouldn't really be my son anymore. How are you feeling, sweetheart, I asked as I attempted to put the thoughts aside. He shrugged, I'm all right. Are you ready? I guess so. He turned towards the water again. Sweetheart, it's all right to be a little bit scared right now. You don't have to be so brave. He looked up at me. You know, I'm scared too. At these words, all of his restraint melted, and he threw himself into my arms. Oh, mother, I am scared. I don't want to go. He sobbed against my neck. He was trembling, just as I had been. Every fiber in my being wanted to scoop him up and run away. Run from the men in orange robes who were forcing us into this separation. Run from the world that dictated such realities and called them wisdom. My baby was crying and I wanted to make his tears go away. I inhaled the sweet smell of him. I would have renounced the whole world to be able to hold onto him, but I would not renounce his future to satisfy my desires. Slowly, ever so carefully, I pulled us apart. My most beautiful sweetheart, I whispered, I'm so sad. I cannot imagine living without you. But I won't hold you back. It's time for you to find your life. But I want to be with you, he exclaimed. I know, I want that too, but you will be with your father. He will take good care of you. He looked past at me to where the men were, his father sitting straight and elegant at the center. I don't even know him, he objected. You will learn to know him. What if he doesn't like me? Oh, that, my darling, is one thing I know you don't have to worry about, I said with a confident smile. You are impossible not to love, my beautiful Rahula. And your father is a good man, you will see. He wiped his tears, which I knew was a good sign. But what if I never see you again, mother? He asked, as he voiced an all too familiar fear. I believe we will see each other again, darling. But if anything happens, I stumbled against the words. Well, then I will see you in the next life. We will never be lost to each other, Rahula. Don't ever forget that. Men in orange robes approached. Are you ready, young master? Asked one of them. Rahula searched my face, looking for permission. He is ready. I answered for him. Thanks, Vanessa.
1: I think that it's a perfect way to start our conversation today. And um, it, it just so happens that it's at the beginning of the novel as well. So for folks who... Um, haven't had a chance to read the novel yet you get the, uh, the memory of remembering Vanessa reading that to you as you get started so I mean one of the fa- one of the things that fascinated me, Vanessa is that you weave together your knowledge as a scholar as well as that of fabulism as well as the complexity of telling hu- human stories um, that connect with all of us how did you manage and what struck you, perhaps, as the most important um, in terms of telling the story when it came to speaking towards journey and the concept of journey, both as uh, her, her journey as an individual, but as to that point you've spoken about of how she was so pivotal in influencing what, who eventually became the Buddha?
2: That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um... I was conscious of a lot of things uh, and other things I think I was just letting myself go, which was a really exciting thing to do because you never do that as a scholar. Um, You're always just very, very precise and kind of organized about your arguments, which is very important. Um, But there was definitely a piece of me that was just kind of letting go and kind of having the journey with her. I knew that she had to get through it. That was clear to me. The tradition is very clear about it. So she has this story of loss. Um, Her loss is so profound that in Sri Lanka, to give you an example of how beautiful this um, emotion is, is that in Sri Lanka, in some villages still today, her songs are sung at funerals. It's part of funeral liturgy. Because who better to know what loss is than her? So the sense of loss was really important to engage with and to feel and to carry and to hold. Um, But the tradition is also clear that at the end of her life, she also leaves the palace and she goes into the forest to find the Buddha and she follows the teachings and she becomes, it's like a happily ever after. (laughs) Like After all of this loss, there's this sense of like, oh, but then at the end, everything's okay. And she becomes a nun and she becomes awakened and she achieves all the realizations that everyone else does. It's a little unconvincing the way the tradition does it because they spend so much time on her loss and then this kind of... You know, it's like Job. If you know the biblical book of Job, is just as kind of spontaneous. And then everything's okay. Um, and what the tradition doesn't do often in the literature is carry you through from the loss to the awakening. So that was really important to me, is that I needed to figure out, if that's how the tradition tells the story, even if they don't do the middle part, I need to do the middle part. I needed to figure out how she gets to the point where she's ready to go find awakening, because that's her story. So I had to fill in a lot of blanks, Um, And so one of the things that I did in the book is I wanted to be really careful, and that's the scholar in me that um, still came out despite my creativity here, um, is that as I wrote the book, I wrote the book, and then at the end, I did a whole section of notes. Um, I can't write without putting end notes, apparently. Um, And so there's endnotes, and one of my friends who's an author made fun of me. He said, who who puts endnotes in a book, (laughs) like in a novel? I did. (laughs) So there's like 30 pages of endnotes, but they're there, so chapter by chapter, so that for people who really want to understand how much did I make up and how much belongs to the tradition, I go through every chapter and I say, this scene comes from here, this scene I made up, this scene comes from here. This doesn't exist in the tradition, but was inspired by another Indian story, so that you can see the trajectory of what I did, um, so you don't have to guess or kind of scratch your head or do 20 years of research, but you can just follow the end notes. And then I'm very transparent also. This is what I created and this is where I was following. And so I think it gives readers a sense of the tradition. Um, some of it's from my imagination, but a lot of it is from the literature. And it was nice to like engage with the literature that way and share it, you know, to kind of remind people, look at this beautiful literature, look at this story of this woman, it's there. It's 2,500 years old, and it was there. And it was written by male authors, almost all of it. And these male authors were sensitive to her loss. So there's something about that that I find very beautiful also. I don't,
1: did I answer your question? Yeah, that's I mean, great. I just talked, but I don't know if I answered that's the, It's all good. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, you gave me quite a nice segue into my, in my next question, which is a little bit to do with actually your process. Um, your writing process, and, and you've given us some, some explanation of how you went about it and the end notes and so on. But I wanted to know a little about how did you find balance in, in the sense of keeping tradition, traditional writing alive, fabulism, which for folks who are not familiar is the form of magic realism in literature, in which fantastical elements are placed into everyday settings, and then also your own voice. Because I, I found there was lots of layers um, um, to this novel in, in terms of kind of those three very unique uh, standpoints. How did you find balance in that in, in your writing process?
2: Well, the fabulism is Buddhist. I didn't make that up either. Like, there's like, I mean, I think in the West we have a lot of expectations that Buddhism is really reasonable. Um, I've had friends tell me, oh, you know, other religions are like religious. You know, people walk on water and stuff, but Buddhism that's a logical tradition. Um, these are Western expectations. They're things that we want to believe about the tradition. We want it to be a philosophy, not a religion. So we've like edited out a lot of aspects of it. But you go to any Buddhist country, and the fabulism and the, um, you didn't call it fabulism. I'm calling it fabulism. What did you call it?
1: Fabulism. Yes, fabulism.
2: Fabulism. fabulism, pardon me. Yes. Yeah, well, it's the same. <laughs> um, it's all over the tradition, right? I mean, gods talk to the Buddha, and they fall from the sky, and magical things happen. And the Buddha gives a teaching where he creates this. It's one of my favorite scenes. It's not in the book, though, um, where he creates this magical jeweled walkway in the sky. He's in a competition with these heretics. And these heretics are, are you know, sure that they're more amazing than he is. And so he's like, no, I'll, I'll show you. And so they like, you know, make water move in a special way and make a pot fly up on a ladder. And he's like, yeah. And he makes this ladder made out of jewels and he puts it up in the sky and it's the length of the cosmos and he walks along this jeweled walkway that he's created in the sky and he just goes back and forth and he teaches the tradition from up in the top of the universe and all the gods come and then he decides he needs a debate partner so he makes a double of himself. And so he puts one of him here. And, he, and you don't know which one's which anymore. And he's debating with himself in these jewels up in the sky that's the length of the con. I mean, the, the, the magical realism that is Buddhism is so breathtaking and sensuous and delightful. Um, and we've, we've eliminated a lot of that in our quest for something philosophical and, and reasonable. Uh, we've missed all of the senses that Buddhism is so engaged in. So I wanted to actually put more of that in the book. Um, but it was a struggle because she was so human to me, and I didn't know how to then add. So I have a few gods that pop up every once in a while, magical things happen, but I, didn't, I think I didn't do even remotely enough if I'm going to like really marry myself to the tradition in that sense. Um, but that was an important piece, is that fabulism of the tradition.
1: Awesome. Thank you. So whether it was intentional or unintentional, for me, when I read through your novel, there was clearly a feminist angle in the way you approach writing your female, uh, your characters, um, specifically your female characters, whether it's Yesodara or her mother's before her. While these women are subject to a woman's place within their households or in relation to um, society, for, for example, or their culture and obviously there's obviously this, this dichotomy of the relationship with her husband who, who eventually becomes a Buddha. They're also portrayed as pushing boundaries. Slowly but surely, they do so. So what most impresses you about her in terms of her resilience and her adaptability?
2: Um, well, the pushing boundaries to me seemed natural probably because that's my temperament. (laughs) So I was just projecting. But um, not really, though. I figure, this was my logic. If they're married for lifetimes, if she is the wife of the great being, lifetime after lifetime. I mean, this is how he's described in the tradition. He is the great being, right? He's the greatest in the whole of 10,000 cosmos. I mean, the imagination of Buddhism is tremendous. And of all the beings in the 10,000 universes, He is the greatest, that's the Buddhist narrative. Well then she's, and she's with him all the time, then she must be his match. That's, I can't imagine anything, otherwise he would have chosen someone else or he would have had 50 different wives or she wouldn't be such a present character, but she's always there. The fact that we don't look at her is a separate issue, but the narrative is that she's there. So if he's the greatest being of all the universes and she's there with him, she must be great. And if he's going to be great by pushing the boundaries of his community and his tradition, which is what Buddhism does in his context, well then, doesn't she do the same thing? So she has to be, right? So then she has to push the boundaries of what it is to be a woman and what are the limitations are. And So she has discussions about um, perceived notions of pollution in women uh, with her mother in the book. And her mother is the first to really push those boundaries with her. Mm -hmm. Because if she's going to be great, she has to have a great mother. So, like, I mean, it just seemed like I'm just like, there. Off we go. So, I just felt like the women characters had to be just as fantastic as the male characters if they're equal. And I think she was his equal. That's, you know, my conclusion after all of this work. It had to be. Thanks, Vanessa.
1: So, obviously, Buddhism is one of the world's most sacred traditional religions. So, was there? Did you feel any pressure around telling this this story? And and if so. How how did that that play out, in, in again, in your process? And how did you respect that in terms of allowing it un- to unfold and moving beyond that to get to this final amazing product?
2: Yeah, there was definitely pressure. Um, one of the reasons the book wasn't published in North America is that I kept getting the same rejection letter over and over again. I was rejected 26 times, I think. It might have been more, but I think I stopped at 26. I'm not sure. Um, and the rejection letters I kept getting was, oh, this is beautiful. I didn't know the Buddha had a wife. I don't think there's a market for this. Right? Like, it was just the same thing over and over again. So then somebody said to me in the publishing industry, look, you're going to have to put some sex in there. <laughs> and I said, oh, no. <laughs> you know, I'm going to become her, but there's a limit to how much my imagination is going to go, and there's a place I'm not going, and that's it. So... And part of it is personally, I didn't want to do that. I had no desire to go there. It, to me, it was upsetting, like I just I thought that's somehow it felt disrespectful for me to do that. But I also thought it's not respectful to the tradition, nobody that's not right. And so there was definitely a, um, I had a perpetual sense of awareness that this tradition means a lot to a lot of people, and I, there was no part of me that wanted to become the Salman Rushdie of Buddhism and wanted to hurt the tradition by being dramatic so I can get a big sale. and like I didn't want that. So I was very conscious. I really wanted to tell the tradition as best as I could, as close to the heart of the tradition as I understood it. That was very, very important to me. But what's interesting is that certain Buddhist countries, uh, like everywhere else in the world, are veering towards fundamentalism. Um, And even these most beautiful, sensuous traditions of the two of them being married and being together, this now is being rejected. And so there's a Puritanism that is happening in certain Buddhist countries that wasn't there 50 years ago. Mm. And uh, a very good friend of mine who is a very senior monastic in a Buddhist country, I'll leave it like that, um, was very upset with me. And she has two PhDs, and she's one of the most senior monastics in her country. Actually, no, she is the senior monastic in her country. And she sat me down one day, and she said, Vanessa, if you're going to do this, She can't be sad. And I said, What? What do you mean she can't be sad? (laughs) Of course she's sad. And she said, No, she was very happy when he left because she was supporting his renunciation and she was proud to be by his side. And I said, But you know that's not the tradition. She goes, Doesn't matter. That's what you must write or you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And I thought about that for a long time, that what I think is a beautiful respect of the tradition is not what everybody is going to agree with. So I had those ideas playing in my head a lot, and I had to think about it a lot, and I had to be very conscious, and I had to make judgment calls, um, but I didn't want to censor the tradition, because I think it's beautiful. So I wanted to engage with it, and at one point I just let go and I did it, but, but the boundaries were something I was always thinking about. because. When you talk about religions, you have to know, you have to understand what this means. So it's not, it's not a carte blanche, you know, like there was a, at the end of the day, you still write, and what happens, happens. Um, so I didn't censor, but I did think at every step of the way. That much is for certain.
1: I can imagine, there must have been lots of thought and process yeah. given to this because, you know, um, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, the stories that we usually consider you know, historically passed down are usually from the narrative of men as well. So lots of things to take into consideration, lots of different angles. So...
2: I, I could just add yeah, really please, obvious angle, is I'm yeah. white.
1: I don't know if anyone noticed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but that's something to think about too, right? Is that this tradition means a lot to me. It's a tradition that I've spent most of my life engaged with. It's personal to me, and I love it. And I've given my life to it in so many ways, but I cannot imagine. I cannot write this book in the vacuum of imagining that there isn't a history of Orientalism and of abuse and of imposition from white cultures to South Asian cultures to East Asian cultures and reappropriation. So that was also like, mm-hmm. it was a really important part of my factoring. Is like a, how much I had to think about it a lot. I had to. It's, and it's not even as though a conclusion ever is reached. There's just I had to know what I was doing and think about it at every step and be sensitive to what I was doing and to what the, the identity <laughs> politics of it could be and all of that. So that's, that was a question, too, that I wrestled with a lot. And at the end of the day, I thought, but I have this in me to write. So I want to write it. The other issue was my historical awareness that Buddhism travels all over the world. And everywhere it goes, it creates a new literature. So when Buddhism traveled from India to Sri Lanka in the third century BCE, it became Sri Lankan, right? And all of a sudden you have this entire Sinhalese library that develops around it, right, and Pali literature. All of this develops where Buddhism becomes Sinhalese very profoundly, and there's this whole literature that comes out of it, and the story's told from that perspective. Then it moves to China, and it becomes Chinese, and the whole tradition gets retold again, but from a Chinese perspective. a whole new library that gets developed, it moves to Japan and Vietnam and Korea and Thailand and Laos and Cambodia. It was in Afghanistan. It was everywhere. And at each step of the way, Buddhism reinvents itself. So that historical awareness was part of what gave me the permission to say that there is an invitation in Buddhism to keep reimagining it. So I have to be aware of, what I look like and what I might represent in certain places and times. But there was also a historical understanding that this is what Buddhism does. Everywhere it moves, it reinvents itself. And so this is a new voice, a Western voice of trying to engage with a very old story, just as it was done over and over again, generation before generation. But all of these are things that I was conscious of. I was never writing it as though everything's allowed, and it was a thought process.
1: Awesome, thank you. So we we very much kind of get to see the influence that who becomes the Buddha has, you know, with his wife, and then how it affects her in, in the sense of you know a lot of the suffering and strife and some of the obstacles that she has to go through in terms of her growth as a woman and as a human being. Do you feel that she had an influence that ultimately? gave him the courage and, and the perspective to transform into the Buddha? Like, How do you feel that worked in the, in, in the other way? We obviously get that sense of, of, of her journey, but do you think that he, she played a pivotal role in terms of influencing his transformation into the Buddha? I hope so. <laughs> how so?
2: I don't know. <laughs> but I imagine if she's always there, she must matter. So I have her... So one of the things that the tradition doesn't do in his life story is um, record that many conversations between the two of them, except, there are a few exceptions, but um, I inserted her into scenes that were really important in his life, because I imagined that they would have talked about them, that they would have engaged in them, if she was always there. Now, it's possible that she was like in the harem and was never really talking to him. There's a way of interpreting the tradition that way. if she was there lifetime after lifetime, I had to imagine that at one point he sat down and talked to her and said, I had this thought. What do I do with it? Right? If he doesn't want to wake her up when he's leaving, mm-hmm. my thought is she already knows. They've had some conversation because he's worried about waking her up. So I imagine that
1: she was there, but I don't know if she was for all of it. It's, it's, it's fascinating, I think the layers of thought that are put into it, like even just having this conversation is making me kind of rethink a lot of the different portions of the novel as well, so that's kind of exciting. Um, so one of the things is your story, your attention to storytelling in an intimate and immediate way is compelling. I found it extremely compelling. The te- characters unravel in layers as they grow and they change and if some transform. What do you hope readers most receive through your storytelling?
2: That was one thing I didn't think about. <laughs> Honestly, I was, I was very conscious of so many things, but I didn't think about what, are, what do I want readers to I couldn't think about that. I knew I had a story I had to tell. So it would have been almost like an artificial thing for me to say. I, but people keep asking me that question now. So it's, a very, it's, it's obviously an important question, but I didn't think of it at the time. Um, what I would want is that she's known. What I would want is that the beauty of the tradition, the sensuousness of it, the humanity of the tradition, and its like cosmic majesty is engaged with a bit more. Um, there's a very simplistic engagement with Buddhism um, in popular culture, generally speaking. Obviously, individually, we're all different, and people have different um, levels of engagement with the tradition. but. My experience in my classroom and with my students wherever I go is that there tends to be this kind of idealized experience of Buddhism where it's, you know, just the Buddha was this philosopher who understood something and it was only human and it's all perfect and it's very mental. And my experience with the tradition, both traveling through Buddhist countries and reading these beautiful texts, is it's such a sensual tradition that every sense is engaged all the time that there are sounds and smells and scintillating jewels everywhere. I, mean, I was just reading this morning a, a, another text and it suddenly dawned on me that when, when the Buddha is covered with jewels in a particular text, it's not just a visual of he's got all of these beautiful jewels on him, they sway when he walks. I, I'd never thought of that before. I was like, oh, you have to think in three dimensions. And so suddenly I have to picture him like standing in front of me and seeing the scene, like him walking on the jeweled walkway. If he's wearing jewels, they must have been moving and they must have made noise and jingled as he walked. There's something so whole about this picture in my mind now that I don't think I appreciated when I was just looking at the text from the outside, that having imagined him, he's become three-dimensional. The story is, and I'm realizing this is such a, a fully human tradition in that sense, that every human sense is engaged, and we we limit it when we make it just about a mental understanding, that it's so much more profound, it's about feeling things and being in the world in a particular way, it's about a love story, it's about drama, it's about the whole of the human experience. And how could it be different? How have we managed to imagine that a civilization that spans 2,500 years that has spanned the entire globe is only mental. How could that possibly be? If human beings have been engaged with this tradition for 2,500 years in every country in the world, it has to be whole. Human beings can't just stay on this plane. Plato did, but that's, you know, that's it. <laughs> and I don't think he did. I think probably it was more complicated than that. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, it's, a, it's that sensuousness that I, I hope begun, be, begins to be engaged with, the humanity of the tradition. I think it's so much more beautiful than we realize. It's not I, meditating and sitting in your head all day, I don't think that's
1: it, it's peace. And I think we could all use peace in times like these. And, uh, and throughout civilization, I think we're all...
2: Oh, I didn't mean peace that way, but yeah, that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that peace. <laughs> I was like, it's a piece of the story.
1: Yeah, a but, piece of the story, got but it. But I think
2: the story's uh, so ironic. much more beautiful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what, it, what comes through, right, is, is the human aspect of it. I think there's a beauty in her vulnerability yeah. Right. But there's also this, and as we spoke a little earlier, I told you, um, you know, one of the things that stood out to me is her resilience. Yeah. Right. And, and and the fact that like a lot of time these narratives that we hear around folks is that, you know, or around the relations of like these sorts of relationships is like that a woman is subservient to a man. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it very much did not feel like that at all. No. If anything, I think that, you know, she as you've said, it's she was very much his equal in, in the sense of being able to um, you know, Im- embody a lot of the things that she was throughout the course of their relationships, lifetime through lifetime.
2: Well, some people have even said to me, um, you know, but it's too feminist that she's his equal, right? that she wouldn't fight with him, or she wouldn't argue with him, because you know, a woman from that time and place would not have. But I really wonder sometimes, this is a question I've been, I haven't, it's a question to think about for me anyway, is how much of our expectations are almost Victorian about everything that is in the past. I sometimes yes. feel like all of human history has been reduced to Victorian ethics and mores. And we cannot imagine anything else, that everything in the past was stilted and confined and very controlled. But when I read you know, the poetry and the plays, of you know, Indian plays from 2,000 years ago, the women talk, they argue, they, they, they tantalize, they, they charm, they, they're like present. Yeah. So why are we always expecting that everybody was stilted in the past and that a woman would have no, you know, would never have the audacity to, you know, answer back at her husband? It's such a strange thing. And one of the things that I actually often thought about is, so my family background, half of my family's here, um, is from, is Middle Eastern. And I often thought this was one of the things that I used to think about was my grandmother. Who's late, mid 90s now and uh, still alive, and very Middle Eastern, very Arabic. Um, She yells really well. (laughs) And she's, you know, you've got the traditional Lebanese, Egyptian style of being in the world and certain social expectations about a husband and and a wife, but she always had her say. She still has her, like there is, you cannot not let her have her say. And I thought about that a lot and I thought, why do I think that everyone of a previous generation, women wouldn't speak? My grandmother speaks, (laughs) women speak. It can't possibly be that for 2,500 years, women didn't speak. So I understand that there's like social containment and that there are times and places and relationships where this wasn't possible, but maybe it was more possible than we realize. This is what I've been playing with in my imagination, is that the stories we tell and what was may not always be well-matched. And then we do ourselves a tremendous disservice to women and to men, that maybe the relationships were more present in some context. I, I, I don't know, I feel like we need to open our imaginations about this, uh, maybe be a little bit more open to the possibility that people were people in the past. <laughs> I don't know, it sounds kind of crazy, but that's, that's the thought that I've been having the humanity of the past, not just of
1: our moment. Yes, thank you. (laughs) I'm feeling this, I wanna give it one of these, right? Um, Very much so, right? I mean, and and that's the truth. I mean, patriarchy folks, ring a bell, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is is that people are complex and dynamic, right? And and that we do live in a way where we either enhance or disable each other, right? And I think that it's far too ignorant to think that women have not been an influential or influential since the beginning of time. And in fact, we do see that in many traditions, right? The acknowledgement of, of, of this as well. So um, I think it's it's critical that we do have this these sorts of voices and these sorts of dialogues in... Are not only with ourselves, but in our communities and with one another, and we start rightfully taking the place that is ours to to own, right? And um, so maybe that kind of segues into the the last question quite ne- quite neatly, um, which is, what's next for you, Vanessa? Um, is there another novel in your future? And uh, where can people connect with you if they if they're interested in f- figuring out um, what's going on with you? Um, any any way of uh, folks being able to connect with you and uh, what what does the future hold for you? <laughs> I don't know.
2: I, r- I really don't know. Um, you can find me easily online. Um, I don't know if I'm going to write another novel. This was this was this was a great. Li- this was a very emotional book for me to write. This was my great love. It was years of thinking and of I w- truly I was like in love the entire time I wrote the book. I was in love with every character. I was in love with the process. I like would wake up and be like, oh, I'm gonna go write. I couldn't not write. It was the most amazing experience I think I've ever had. Um, And I don't know if it's gonna happen again. I really don't. I just know I, I had to write this one. And we'll see what happens later.
0: On the Live Mike episode page, livemike.ca, you will find biographies of featured writers, guests, and hosts, as well as links to TPL's collections or other episode-related materials. For all of TPL's podcast series, go to tpl.ca slash podcasts. Toronto Public Library is one of the world's busiest urban public library systems. Every year, more than 20 million people visit our 100 branches in neighborhoods across the city and borrow more than 32 million items. Live Mike Best of TPL Conversations is produced by the Toronto Public Library. Episodes are produced by Natalie Curtis, Jorge Amigo, and me, Gregory McCormick. Technical support by Michelle DeMarco and George Panayotu. AV support by Jennifer Casper and Mesfin Baisisu. And marketing support by Tanya Alexic. Music is by Worst Pop Band Ever, also known as WPBE. I'm Gregory McCormick, Manager of Cultural and Special Event Programming at Toronto Public Library. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another episode of Live Mike, Best of TPL Conversation.